welcome back to Ohio Counseling Conversations, the official podcast of the Ohio Counseling Association, bringing you updates and conversations from around the state. This month, we're joined by Dr. Stacy Hayes, a counselor educator and supervisor, counselor, and founder and CEO of the MetaVoice Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on mental health and wellness in the metaverse with DEI. Join us as we lean into rumble with technology's impact on us as humans and as counselors and how we can do better to understand it all. As per usual, I'm your host today, Dr. Marissa Cargill, a counselor educator at the University of Akron and counselor at Cuyahoga Community College. Let's dig in. Welcome back. This is Ohio Counseling Conversations. Today, we are so fortunate to be joined by Dr. Stacy Hayes. Excited to have a cool discussion today, especially as it pertains to mental health and technology. Dr. Stacy, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in the mental health field and spaces? Yeah, so uh, first-generation college student, which was really interesting, which came with a lot of unique challenges and opportunities. I mean, um, if anyone out there has been first-generation college student, you know, your family just doesn't understand. They don't get it. They don't understand you're doing internships and practicums, working for free. Um, so all of that kind of, my mom still says that my doctorate is in psychology, and it's like this big joke. It's in counselor education and supervision. Uh, but she keeps saying psychology is just easier to say, easier for her to wrap her head around. And she's like, couldn't be more proud, uh, but just not really understanding the whole scope of what it was. So graduated from Akron, four years, no summers, always had been really good about school, but never really understood like why I was doing it. Just thought that that was the end game was graduate. And, um, you know, my generation specifically was taught like, hey, go get a degree. You're going to have the best life. You're going to have all these job opportunities. You know, amazing, amazing things are going to happen when you graduate. So actually nothing happened for me. So it was about five years before, uh, you know, my undergraduate and my master's and counseling just kind of found me. It wasn't something that I always dreamt about doing. Like I loved the idea of helping people believe in themselves and counseling really gave me that vessel to make that happen. So went to Kent for my master's, loved it so much, stayed there for my PhD. My clinical experience has predominantly been everything from children to adolescents to families, couples, um, let's see, forensics. And I loved it all college age students, you know, I didn't want a career. So I loved all of it. And because I didn't really have this natural call to a specific population, I was like, I really like teaching. I love empowering. I love the idea of building soldiers to go out and fight this, you know, this war against, you know, mental illness and, and you know, help people and facilitate the success of, you know, others. So I went into counselor education, really enjoyed it. So I've spent the last five years um, in counselor education, um, the students were incredible. I think for me personally, I lack the proper reverence to stay in higher ed for, for a very long time. Um, and I felt like my story if is nothing other than a story of what's next and understanding that the journey is the fun part and that you got to keep growing and you got to keep climbing and you kind of keep moving on to the next thing. So the next thing for me ended up being um, starting a nonprofit. So I'm in the process of doing that. And essentially um, it's called the MetaVoice Foundation. And what we're focusing on is mental health and wellness in the metaverse with DEI. So essentially mental health and technology in this interplay. Wow. Okay, cool. So Gosh, that's a lot. But like, it's so cool to hear your story. And um, I can relate to quite a few parts of that. It's been so interesting. I work with college students and career is like a big theme. So I feel like this is, is interesting, too, when we talk about our own career paths and how we got here. So um, we're glad you're here. And and so uh, when we invited you to this podcast, you you said mental health and technology is like where where you are really passionate and feel maybe some sort of calling, like you like to talk about it. Um, help us understand the passion for the topic. Well, and I think um, what really prompted it was that by time in the doctoral program, and you're constantly looking for like, oh, what's my dissertation going to be? You know, what am I, who am I going to be in this field? 
And, you know, I really enjoyed talking about empathy. I loved cognitive complexity, you know, all of these kinds of different things that they really couldn't find anything that I felt was a really good conversation, something that was in the gap, something yeah. that had that social utility, something that had that relevance, something that was going to change or make things better, or at least prompt a conversation that could facilitate that. So I started just like looking around and, you know, I like after I finished my doctorate and then, you know, you're supposed to get published and, you know, you have so many articles where articles go to die, which is like under review and you're just kind of sitting around waiting. And I was like, well, I'm just going to kind of take a second. I'm going to open my heart. I'm going to open my mind and I'm going to kind of just pay attention. And it was around Thanksgiving. Um, and it's always a funny story because I have three young kids and on Thanksgiving, they wake up and they make a gingerbread house, which is them pretending to put the gingerbread house together and me pretending to not notice they're just eating candy for breakfast um, while they watch the Thanksgiving Day Parade. So they're using, they're eating all this. And I was like seeing all this stuff about NFTs. And I'm like, what's an NFT? And like, they're talking about the metaverse. I'm like, what's the metaverse? And I'm like, what is this? Like, what's happening? What's going along? And then that, and then starting, um, I think for years, we've all noticed how much adolescents are just like glued to their phone. You see people yeah. out in public, right? And they're sitting across from each other, but they're talking on their phones. Yeah. So Marissa, when did you get a cell phone? Um, what age? I was, I think 15, because I was like starting to learn how to drive and they wanted me yeah. to have my own once I had a car. Yeah. So this is what's funny is like, because I think it's just a constant reminder of what our, how we experience the world and our realities are not someone else's. So I remember getting a cell phone at exactly the same time is when you started driving. And the whole thing was, it was for safety. Yep. Like it wasn't to connect or relate to my No, peers. No, because I mean, you could call, like even texting wasn't a big thing when I was getting that phone. I remember us texting and then our parents getting like $900 phone bills. Because you got free texting, so I don't, I don't, I don't think it was me per se, but I know of some friends who had these ridiculously large cell phone bills because there wasn't free texting. So we are probably right around the age where we have kind of like one foot in remembering that, and then looking at now. Uh, I know you had mentioned earlier that you had cousins that were younger than you. Do yeah. you know when they had cell phones? Oh, I would assume middle school. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> So what I'm seeing with my kids, so my kids are nine, 10 and three. So I kind of, you know, um, the school age and we have, um, some colleagues and they have some friends who got cell phones in kindergarten Yeah, and they actually have a cell phone jail that they put their cell phones in, in fourth grade. Wow. So they go to a Catholic school. So it's in Kent. So it's Kent state. So it's a little bit more of an affluent community compared, you know, like more marginalized and oppressed areas, but it's just, they're getting that technology sooner. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's not completely altruistic that I was drawn to this field because I'm really looking at the people that I care about and going, how is this affecting them? And how am I personally going to be a better mom by knowing these things on top of being a counselor and a counselor educator and helping others? Oh yeah, no, I, I relate to that. I, I don't have children of my own, but I have a niece and nephew that I'm really close mm -hmm. to and um, 16 and 13. <laughs> and it's the, the access is so different and the impact I think is, is what you're getting at is also completely different than what we remember at those ages, especially. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think counselors can like lean into this topic and better understand what's going on um, with how technology and especially cell phone use um, affects the people we support? So I think this is going to kind of be different for each person. So um, analogy I used in, um, in an article I recently like wrote like last last year it was essentially like we're like if we think of technology or the metaverse or as a pool, mm -hmm. some of us are gonna kind of dip our toe in the water because that's our level of comfortability. Maybe we just read an article, maybe we watch a podcast, maybe we look up a TED talk, you know, uh, maybe we do all of these kinds of different things. We watch a documentary on TV or something like that. Um, some of us might choose to dive in and be like, this is a pool I'm comfortable in. You know, they may choose like, hey, I play VR video games. This is something I'm very comfortable with. So, and like, I, they're like, I have a natural inclination for technology. I have a background. You know, this is something that I'm into. Um, or we have people who kind of can sit outside the pool, never get in the pool, but basically like act as like lifeguards and being like, you know what? 
guys, don't jump in the deep end. You know, don't splash around. Stop running outside the pool. Like, this is not what we should do. So kind of looking at what your natural comfortability with technology is, where your um, ability lies, too, because I think that's a big part of understanding that self-awareness of how good are you at this, how excited are you about it, and how able are you to be able to engage with that, you know, media. Okay. Where do you think, like, as a profession where we are now with, like, our level of understanding? And then I guess to piggyback onto that, like, where should we be going with it? Uh, so this is what's really interesting. I think um, counselors are so incredibly busy. They are so um, inundated with clients. I think I spoke to a friend and colleague the other day, and they're talking about like, yeah, so I can only see clients once every three weeks. My caseload is so gigantic, mm-hmm. let alone any of our um, colleagues that are doing administrative work. So they just got piled on with all of this. So unfortunately, I think for counselors, what happens is, is we don't necessarily think about this till we get a client or we have a supervisee who has a client who um, they have video game addiction. They have gaming addiction. You know, they have, you know, you know, phone. They can't like they have FOMO. They can't they can't function without connecting with that technology. And that's when we start engaging because then it is our responsibility to educate ourselves. So I think sometimes, too, it comes down to necessity. Yeah. So. Yeah, it sounds like it, in some scenarios, maybe it's more reactive. Like, oh, yeah. I, I know there's a problem, so we got to engage more with, like, tools and resources to support our client. Yeah. And it's not by choice, because I think by inherently by our nature, we try so hard to be preventative. We just cannot get ahead of this as it's been rolling towards us. Yeah. And that might also be a testament to society, not just our profession of like, we try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps that like um, American individualistic, like sometimes that asking for help is um, tough and we ask for help when it is a problem rather than like it's slippery slope to a problem. We're like, no, we're addressing it now because, oh my gosh, here I am. Or we're the helpers. We shouldn't need help. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what credibility do we have in helping others if we can't even help ourselves? So it's, yeah, this this horrible narrative that has emerged. Absolutely. Yeah. So knowing all of this and knowing like technology is like incredibly pervasive, unavoidable in a lot of contexts, what do you think or how do you think this information is going to affect counselors in the coming years? Oh, sure. So I think um, how it's going to affect counselors is we're just going to see it a heck of a lot more. So I think what the hardest thing that um, for us to predict at this point is with the like the versions of the internet. So if we think mm-hmm. of like web 1.0 being like 1990s, we're in web 2.0 right now, which is the TikTok, social media, you know, the uh, free flow of information. You can always find somebody who agrees with you or, you know, you can find like-minded individuals, you know, mental health has been somewhat um seeking help for mental health has been um, destigmatized to some extent. Yeah, for sure. So we're in Web 2.0. Yeah. So good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, we're in the middle of it. Um, And I think quite frequently you have one leg in one and one leg in the other. Mm -hmm. So I think Web 3.0 is unfolding and will be unfolding within the next like five years. Um, So I think what we're trying to predict and what I'm trying to wrap my head around now is, are we going to have an exacerbation of psychopathologies in the same way that we experienced through Web 2.0 or different in Web 3.0? Okay. So I guess you're already telling us some of this, like, but like, so what makes it so important that we are paying attention to this? Why as counselors do we care that this is maybe riding the fence between the two? So we're going to care because our clients are going to need us to know what's going on. So we're going to kind of need to know about all of these kinds of different things. So if we could have known what a big deal that cyberbullying would have been, we could have done something. We could have put in some, you know, some support systems. And a lot of time that comes down to education, educating parents. Um, and I don't want to keep focusing on adolescence, but that's where my heart is, because I think that was my major, my bulk of, uh, you know, my clinical experience and really looking at how we are, we can look at them and say, how is being on, you know, a game for eight hours affecting their development? You know, not only from prefrontal, um, you know, cognitive way, but a developmental way. Um, how is sitting on TikTok for 10 hours 
affecting their emotional regulatory system. We're not meant to be laughing one second and crying the next second. I don't think we're wired to potentially be able to do that. And we're forcing ourselves and training ourselves to do that. We're laughing one second, crying, and then angry the next. So what will that do? Um, So really looking at counselors are going to care because it's going to be right in front of them. And the more that they know and the more that they're able to educate themselves, their supervisees, their students, um, the more we're going to be able to be ready to make this transition. and stay connected because who we are as counselors is to be authentic, be a genuine and make that personal connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I keep thinking like awareness is only half the battle. Right. Like um, so bringing that into awareness is, is wonderful for ourselves as, as practitioners, our supervisees, our students and our clients, obviously. But like, how do we help regulate the use or or I guess just to have a better relationship with technology. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I like, and I talk about this with my husband all the time. I'm like, it's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It's just happening. So there's good things that we can look at with technology. There's, you know, there's bad things, but I think it is just what it is. Like you can't even apply for a job anymore without, you know, going online. So it never used to be like that. You used to have to, I don't know, Marissa, if you're young enough to remember this, but like walking in and you'd have to get an application and you'd have to be like, hi, are you guys hiring? And you'd have to make a point of contact right there. And they'd hand you a little piece of paper and you prayed that you didn't make a mistake on it. Right. <laughs> or else you have to go back and ask for another one. Another one. one. <laughs> yeah. Did I you have to go? I you do? I remember. Yeah. So it's different. It's interesting. And I think about like behavioral addictions as one of those. Um, not that addiction in itself is easy, no matter what, but that it's harder because it's unavoidable. Like with technology, like, I mean, I might have even applied for jobs, but like pay your bills to a lot of that type of stuff where it's like hard for me to not engage in like using my cell phone for of those just like really practical things but then the temptation of like well I can close out of my mail app and just open Instagram you know like or or things like that where it just seems um a lot easier because of access um it's not this it's not like as easy to abstain from in in a lot of ways yeah 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 um so knowing all this knowing that the future is looking like we better get more aware of what's happening and how it's affecting development like where do you think this is going to take us as a profession moving forward okay so this was like this is a really interesting question because i know um i have a small research team um and we haven't met for a little bit because i think you know with with summer there was a lot going on but we like we felt conflicted about this um i am of the adage of telehealth is great for some people, not so good for others. So I know there was a couple of people that I work with on the research team that was like, we need to do counseling virtually, like completely virtually, like you are an avatar or you are in this virtual world and you're doing counseling. And I'm kind of like, mm, pump the brakes a little bit. Like, I like the idea. I think it could be something that would be really helpful with like, you know, children, adolescents, um, you know, certain adults, but I think we need to get a clearer picture of who would most benefit and who could potentially be harmed by doing this. Um, there's a lot of snafus. There's a lot of issues, including technological ones, because technology is really not caught up to imagination yet. So we can imagine all these wonderful, beautiful things, um, but we really don't have the technology to support it. Um, and it's super expensive. But um, as of right now, there is a pretty interesting um library of research. So there's a man named Balenson uh, on the West Coast who's doing phenomenal work. Um, Really fun studies. Like you hear some of these studies and you're like, man, somebody had fun at work today. Uh, For example, they did a study where they had like people come in and they're like, all right, come in here. We're going to do this. And they put them in the flying machine, the birdle, and they let them fly. So some of them flown. And then the other people, they were put in a helicopter and they got to be sitting up in a helicopter and they flew. So both parties flew, one is Superman, one in a helicopter. And then they brought those people back for an interview into the main researcher's office. And what they did is they knocked the pens over on purpose, on accident. And then um, the people who 
flew as Superman were more likely to help pick up the pens than the people who um, flew in the helicopter. So giving like this pro-social behavior that erupted from having this, you know, fantastical event in virtual reality. So they had fun at work that day. So this really creative, like fun, like, you know, really looking at, can we increase somebody's ability to be more socially effective? Um, Yes. Can we have more empathy for people? And I'd say this is a really good um, application for counselor education is having an individual go into virtual reality as a person of a different, you know, um, ethnicity or gender or culture or and really look at how people treat them within virtual reality as that other person. So they live as if um, and really monitoring those potential biases, those microaggressions in a safe space. So you're mitigating um, any potential harm. Um, to outside people, outside sources, cl- potential clients, because we're giving students this ability to sit in this world and have that empathy and be able to process and reflect. Because one thing I think we do um, not so great in counselor education is the remediation process. Um, when you have somebody who has, yes, I have this bias, this is how I was raised, this is how I was grew up, we're like, yeah, that's great, you can't do that which we need to absolutely know that's unacceptable, but we're not great at offering that support because what do we do when we remediate? We're like, Hey, go do some continued education and ethics. Yeah. That's not how. So I think that's a really great application, um, but really looking at making sure we're not jumping into this world just because it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, really looking at what's scientifically grounded, evidence-based mm-hmm. and um, doing that research to support it. So it's kind of limitless where we can go with it. Yeah. And I think it, I appreciate your point of it needs to be intentional because that's also yes. modeling how we would want like people to operate and navigate in the world. Like we're trying to teach clients to do that, but like as a profession, as clinicians, we have to also do that to ensure, yeah. like, you know, we're getting the best care. And, and to your point with our students that went as, counselor educators too, like that we're being really intentional with trying to provide that remedial support, but in ways that maybe are, um, I guess, like a little bit more expansive than what we've had so far. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So this is like, I mean, I am also interested in media technology and things like that, which I shared with you before we started. So I, I love like what you're saying. And I think that it's cool too. Think about how much technology could support where we're headed. How do you think everything that we've discussed so far really impacts like counselor professional identity? Yeah, so um, so humanistic. What is the definition of that? Believing in, you know, fundamentally that people have what they need, you know, and then like we're going to connect. We're going to have empathy. We're going to support these people through that. So what does that look like in a potentially virtual space? So I, are we changing how we connect? Like, because I remember Dr. Gensius, who is somebody who saw this coming. Are you familiar? Martha? Yes, I've heard his name many times. And I think I yeah. had the opportunity to meet him years and years ago. Yeah. So when I went to Kent State, I actually lost um, Dr. Betsy Page was one of my advisors for, on my doctoral committee. So she ended up passing away about six months before I graduated. So Dr. Gensius stepped in. So he was my advisor, but he saw all this coming like, 15, 20 years ago, probably 15 years is fair. Um, so he's probably going, yeah, I know. Uh, with, yeah, he's like, yeah, welcome to the party. Because none of this is new. Like VR has been around like the 60s. Yeah. So really thinking about it, it's funny. But what he said is like, you know, we were talking about empathy and can you express it and can you feel somebody else's feelings? And he goes, so he brought up a really good point. And he's like, when's the last time you watched a movie that touched you, that made you cry? You know, and it made me think of those commercials where, like, the, the military, um, they come home and they oh, see yeah. their kids, yeah. like, blubbering like an idiot. So I do think, yes, we can translate. It's just going to be different. Um, so I think how it affects our professional identity is we need maybe need to be a little bit more flexible in how we conceptualize certain things. Um, it is going to require us to step outside our comfort zone. This is not, I mean, you saw the resistance that a lot of people had when we had to do Zoom because it was out of necessity and it was in the best interest of our clients. So the people that were angry, um, irritated, frustrated um, about having to see clients in a way that they didn't prefer because the situation required it. 
Um, so really analyzing what is that resistance other than us coming outside of our comfort zone in a way that we're not used to. We could be very comfortable with ambiguity in one way um, and not in another. So really looking at how can we be flexible within that, but still stay true to our roots and those roots being that humanistic principle. Yeah, I appreciate that. Like I think of the changes, like I, it's, you know, it's easy to reflect back on that. It's still pretty recent, but also was so powerful. Nothing obviously unprecedented, which is a word I know we're all sick of, but like, um, I, in the higher education spaces, it's like, whoa, we had to shift on a dime. And um, obviously in mental health, that was happening as well. What I think is coming from that, though, is that the access and the reach was so much easier for the people on the other side. So for our students and for our clients, and it made things um, in their life, in some ways, a lot easier. And, you know, thinking of people who never considered working from a home before, right? Who are now like, no, I'll only do that. <laughs> you know, that there's been a, a cultural shift with, with the um, comfort in technology and what that also provides you by like evolution toward it um, versus, you know, discomfort pushing back and away from it. Um, so yeah. What were the biggest changes you think that you personally had to make during that time? Um, for me, like I was living alone. So I think like for me also, like socially, it was challenging because it was like, oh, now I have to kind of almost like force myself to reach out rather than just expecting that I would get to socialize at work. So that was a little challenging and yeah. lonely in some ways. But I think there is power in that. Um, you know, like you have more time to do those things because you're not commuting and you're not, um, I guess you're not like obligated in the, in the same way as your lunch break can, you know, take care of a lot more, you know, so like you're not stuck at work where I'm like, I can't do laundry on my lunch break when I have to commute 40 minutes, but mm -hmm. I can, or I could go for a walk. And like, so I just felt like I was able to be more well in a lot of ways, but I had to be more intentional in some other ways um, in terms of like social wellness. I think like as, as a worker though, like for, um, you know, virtual meetings weren't even a big thing. I feel like conferences were, were the way. And now I, I don't remember the last in-person meeting I had with like a bunch of colleagues. That's not entirely true. I actually just had one a couple weeks ago, but it was like a kick, kickoff meeting. Um, I, but like more often all of our follow-ups after that kickoff meeting, our WebEx, you know, like, so it's not, um, I, I just feel like that that transitions things um, too, where it's just like, we're more accessible to each other in some ways, and sometimes even able to put up better boundaries in other ways. Um, yeah. Have to be careful with that, which kind of contributes to our discussion of like, I intentionally at that time, I only lived in a one bedroom apartment, we didn't have like a spare bedroom to have like an at-home office. I put it in my laundry room because I was like, I need to be able to shut the door and leave right. that there. But that hey, was yeah. an intentional decision, you know, yeah. like, because it wasn't the most comfy in my laundry room quite, you know, but it was like, but then it's, it has its separate space. And I know that's, a, that's not either an option for some folks or as easy. So yeah, it's all about that. Like, figuring out what works, but definitely a lot of change. Definitely. Yeah. Do you have similar experiences? I guess tell us about how it, it was for you. But the only, like you were by yourself and I was jammed in the house with like four dogs and like a husband, um, two children. And I was nine months pregnant, like during the, the belly of the beast of 2020. Wow. Um, I was teaching a four, four. So I had done all my prep um, for the rest of the semester. And I remember walking into my class and being like, um, so students, this is where we're at. There's this COVID thing. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I said, but we're going to figure it out. 
Um, and I, they said there's talk of them canceling or, you know, canceling in-person classes. I don't know. We might go online. And having that was the funniest thing because I've always been just a very transparent professor. Because yeah. um, yeah. my biggest thing was as a student, I appreciated that. Going like, you know what? I'm not exactly sure what's going on. And yeah. um, in higher ed, that is not something you ever want to say. Right. <laughs> I don't know why we have this hiccup in saying it, but I'm like, listen, I don't know what's going on, but we're going to figure it out. And, you know, we're going to do it. Um, and I had to transition everything back to um, online from an in-person format. Um, the good news was, is I had an existing relationship with all of these students, mm-hmm. which the research suggests is what is what makes it more successful if you are going to transition to an online format is having an in-person connection before that happens. So I did have that. So when that happened, I was like, okay, we're going to figure this out. Um, I noticed I had to up my... Um, receptiveness as far as to emails, I had to respond faster. Um, students had much less anxiety. So I remember I was checking my emails in the morning and at night. And if, after that, I didn't do it anymore. Because like you said, setting that personal boundary of when am I not working? Yeah. If I'm always accessible, when am I not working? So I made it very clear, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. Answering emails very quickly. Um, I had to slow down my speech being on Zoom because I talk super fast in person. My brain moves really quickly. So I'm probably still even talking fast and I'm working on it. But if you could see, if you could hear how fast I would actually talk if I was not like not paying attention to it. But that's another thing the research tells us. You have to talk, you know, more clearly and more slowly. Um, so all of these kinds of things that we had to adjust, but I think the biggest thing I took away from that is, is we can do what we do in a virtual space. Do some of us prefer it? No. Do some of us hate it? Yes. And some of us will always hate it. There's no getting around it. So if you hate it, you're not going to be, you're going to be a lifeguard then. You're going to be someone who kind of stands on the outside and you'll address the issues that your clients have or your supervisees clients have as you're kind of moving through it. And that's Okay. But in order for us to stay relevant as a profession, we have to make these slight kind of calibrations and just educating ourselves on what these things mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all well taken. It's, I mean, it's weird to think, but like, yeah, we had to shift and um, make a lot of calibrations. But that flexibility that you were referring to earlier is where it was forced flexibility then. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah adapting to the circumstances but now it shows us like what how far we can stretch and where there are um i guess opportunities for some of us and some people won't want to take that opportunity and that's okay but like yeah i don't think i would have thought telehealth was like a thing you know pre that always prefer an in-person i know like in um my office at tracy like our counseling office is probably more unique in that we do like academic, career, personal crisis all in one space where a lot mm-hmm. of universities separate those kind of sure. situations. But that virtual appointments were like, you know, few and far between. Like you need to come into the office for an appointment. We don't really do maybe like a quick phone call if you have a quick academic question, but we don't really do these other things. And that, you know, I started seeing some students, you know, through like our, you know, um, WebEx and things like that too for appointments and that it was like, oh, this is not bad. You know, like this isn't something that, why weren't we doing this? Um, And I think a lot of of spaces, not just higher education felt that way um, as a result of it. So learning that that flexibility, um, although forced (laughs) in a lot of ways can can help our, institutions or systems grow in ways that supports people um, that most need it. So, yeah, awesome. Um, what are some ethical or safety concerns, you know, tied to technology that you think like, you know, in the same vein that we need to be mindful of in navigating? Right. So number one, like privacy and safety, there's no um, computer program on the planet that's impenetrable. So really looking at when you're talking about counseling and creating a safe space, it is imperative that people feel comfortable or else what's the point of even having it? You know, cause they're not going to be able to come. They're not going to be able to create that relationship and have that safe environment um, and able to grow that, you know, therapeutic interventions. Um, so with, with safety, I think this is a very interesting spin because you know, you hear so much about harassment 
and, you know, the bullying and, you know, everything from name calling to actual like sexual and verbal assault and how they had like had to put the bubble around people and they're like actively working on it. And there's, we're in such a phase of problem solving that all it's like whack-a-mole. One problem pops up, it gets knocked down. So like, it's so like, we're so in a reactive state, I think is what you said earlier is a good way to explain it as far as like looking at how we can keep people safe. So that privacy and safety piece. Um, confidentiality, kind of going back to that privacy piece, um, state lines, really looking at how we're going to handle that situation. Cause you can eventually, um, one of the beautiful things is that say if there's a supervisee that I want to meet with that has a specific area of expertise and they're in a different country, I'm able to do that. But as far as seeing clients and what that looks like, so that's a big mess as far as like, you know, state lines and how, yeah. you know, we're going to combat that. Yeah. Um, did you have a reaction to that? Oh, I was just thinking, and hopefully the counseling contact will help with that situation, especially, but that, you know, since it's still in the works, it still presents like those challenges for, for now. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. That's a, an excellent point because that's such an incredible thing that yeah. I hope. Yeah. So very, yeah. very exciting. But I think what I've kind of hammered down on as far as being, you know, one of the major ethical concerns is scope of competency. Mm, okay. Um, really looking at how do people get educated on how to do this? So like, yeah, I want to do this. I want, I'm, I'm somebody who I want to dip my toe in, or I want to jump in the swimming pool. How do I become educated in this area? So essentially what the nonprofit is going to do is provide continuing educations for counselors and hopefully all mental health professionals, parents, anybody that wants to get involved. So um, my thing is, is really looking at not providing counseling services. So I think that's really confusing when you hear I'm a counselor, but instead providing educational opportunities. And then eventually I would love to do outreach and establishment of best practices through supporting research that's counseling specific. So where we find ourselves now is um, the dearth of uh, knowledge really comes from medical community yeah. and really looking at how they're using, you know, VR to, you know, do diagnostics and, you know, provide opportunities for doctors or for nurses. So, um, yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate all that you're sharing. I think this topic is so relevant, but it seems like some people, like you said, might want to just get their toe in the water or be the lifeguard kind of standing on the side, um, not necessarily entering into the space. What do you think is making it or why do you think it's like so taboo or undervalued in the counseling profession at this point? Well, it could be an individualistic thing. Um, it could be a personality thing, like people who are drawn to help other people want to sit face to face. They want to connect with them. And that's ne not necessarily the people who, you know, go into technology or are interested in technology or see the value in technology. So it could potentially be a personality thing. Um, but I really think it's just we're inundated with work. We really can only deal with what's in front of us. So until we can kind of, you know, get back and in front of it a little bit more. Um, it could be a stress tolerance thing. Like we can only handle so much. We're so stressed at work. We're so um, concerned and, and wanting to help. And we don't see the value and why you're learning it. So one thing that I liked to do as a professor is provide the practicality of why you're learning this. And so I think, uh, you know, people understanding that this is why this is going to help me. I'm learning about this to help people. Then they're like, Oh, okay. So making that connection between why they're going outside their comfort zone and potentially learning something they don't see the value in and showing them the practicality and how they'll be able to do their job better with that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like as an educator, I'm like, mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm, because sometimes you get those like end of semester evaluations where someone might think like, I don't really know why this was relevant for me to learn. And then I'm like, wait, I thought we were trying to figure that out the whole semester. So then like the next semester, I'm like, okay. You know better true. than to put value in student about it's the worst class of their life. It's the best. Uh, <laughs> well, so. I, I think it, it's consistent. I teach career. And so I think sometimes there's just like a, um, and if any of my students are listening, they know because every week I'm like, why do we think this is relevant? And um, because it, it is important to make sure the dots are connected. And so um, that's true even when we're working with our clients with education. So to the point of, of what you want your nonprofit to do of being like a source for educational opportunities for both professionals and for people who might be impacted like parents. Um, it seems like that's something where we also want to make sure people understand the relevance and, and how those um, dots connect as well. So, yeah, it's all 
it's all connected, right? <laughs> um, I think like when you when you talk about it, it's like, how do we take skills and knowledge and turn it into practice? Like there has to be, there's a hiccup that happens there for so many um, young, young professionals and, you know, students that are just you know, new to the field. And I think remembering too, that we have to be uncomfortable with ambiguity. That's a part of what we do. And we feel like we get to a certain point in our career and we're like, yes, I don't have to worry about being uncomfortable or, you know, being vulnerable or not knowing exactly what to do in specific situations because you have all this experience to prove from. I don't think you should ever get to that point. That means you're not challenging yourself. You're not having the difficult conversations. You're not going where you should be going as a professional. So this is like one more thing yeah. to kind of throw to this. Yeah, and I and to the to bring it back to specifically like with technology, it's like sometimes technology fails and we have to have like a backup plan and things like that. So like the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the the things that we might experience as a result, we also have to be prepared for. Um, I just started a new role and um in addition to like all the other hats I wear of doing oh, yeah. some additional telehealth and the first client I had. I had my, I had different Bluetooth headphones. I have like a headset. Audio wasn't working, you know? And so I'm like, wait, I don't understand what's going on. And you were so, ready. You, know, you were you know, ready. You were like, let's yeah. do this. And so you, you have to also be able to, in those situations, have like some flexibility and adaptability to say, okay, what do I do in the, these situations where it's like a me technology issue? It's, like I have to roll with it, but that for someone, especially as a new professional, like if that was your first session ever at all, like you might feel like, oh my God, fail, <laughs> you know, but it, it is really just like uh, the humanistic part of it. Like this is going to happen and we'll, you know, like make sure that um, we have a solution, even if it seems yeah. like in the moment you had to think on the fly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I love that, that you mentioned that because even the research suggests like you need to a lot for frustration tolerance, especially if you're like in a supervisor, supervisee relationship and you're doing online supervision, you need to understand that technology is going to fail. And, you know, when you have a client, what happens if I lose you? Where are you? How do I get a hold of you? If there's an emergency situation, like all of these kind of contingencies. So like you said, being very intentional, as you had mentioned, and preparing for the worst. Mm -hmm. But can I say that no matter how groundbreaking technology can be, you cannot innovate your way out of an existential crisis. So technology can never help with that. And that's where I think we need to act as kind of like Sherpas. So if we're going up the mountain with them or whatever's going on and we're, we're guiding, we're walking beside them, we're still tracking, we're still being present with them and providing the services yeah. that we do as counselors. Yeah, it's still a relationship. It might be in a different way, but like we think about sometimes like even just remove like our profession for a moment because we are human. Like when you're having a tough day, but you are alone because you're leaving work and you're driving, you might call someone you care about to talk to them and de-escalate yourself, like just as a coping skill, right? And so we know that like technology has been used, like, I mean, even if you want to think about like more colonial before phones, right? The technology was the postal service and you would write and send something in that way, but like it was another way to connect with people when you could not connect in right. person. And so, I mean, I think there's there's always that, and it's just evolving in, in how we do that connection. Um, but the relationship is still at the root of it. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Um, in the last few episodes, we've had trauma-informed care has come up quite a bit. And we know that like, Certainly, that should be sort of at a root for us ethically as well. Uh, how do you think better understanding technology would support that? Well, I think that like the most logical correlate that I can make in my head, just like right off the get, is um, you know the wonderful work that's been done like since the '90s with PTSD and fear, and having the ability to kind of go back and re-narrate that story, or you know whatever therapy they're implementing into that care, that intervention. So that is one area that I think is specifically and uniquely equipped to address some of those issues. 
Um, and I think just, I love this concept of understanding where a person is coming from and what's going on and what, what, you know, what happened to them and why, and, you know, have this whole like idea of rallying behind them and supporting them in a unique way. And I love the idea of using creative interventions. Um, you know, another thing is technology provides the ability to provide like a meditative environment, art therapy, like all of these beautiful, wonderful environments that we can create where people can just kind of relax and unfold and unpack some of those things. Um, and this is another, you know, way for us and my nonprofit to kind of look at establishment of best practices and start looking at how are all these individuals going to be affected. Um, and if we can like look at the psychopathologies that are going to be exacerbated. And really look at, can we unwrap that? Can we come back a second? So like I said, like really looking at, if we would have known cyberbullying would have been a big thing. We could have gotten ahead of that. We could have done something. We could have educated, you know, parents. Um, we could have educated, you know, you know, school counselors. They're like, they're doing milk duty and then they're doing bus duty. You know, they're, un, you know, unwrapping lunches and then they're going in. So they're not like, they need more support. They need more help. But I think really looking at how we can use creative interventions to support. Yeah, and I and I like am reminded by something you said earlier of like ethically, like safety is important here. And I think like as as we think about trauma informed care, like it's providing those safe spaces, like you were saying earlier. And then sometimes I recognize like telehealth may not feel like always the safe space, uh, but for some people it feels the safest. Yes. In in terms of like what they might be experiencing it, it's destigmatizing to to engage maybe in in a virtual way but also that um, there's that ability to be comfortable where you're at you know like in your physical space you might feel like this is easier for me to talk about because I'm, I'm in my surroundings versus an office not that we don't all try to make it comfortable in the physical spaces we have but that it's still new to them. It's not their space. And so um, that, that could be really a valuable um, part of the process for a lot of folks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is so cool. I just love all, all the things we're talking about. Um, now, we ask this question with every guest that we have because the name of our podcast is Ohio Counseling Conversations. What important conversations do you think counseling professionals should be having with each other? And it's twofold because you could also add and or with their clients in, in the state of Ohio. Okay, so tip, in typical higher ed fact, uh, fashion, I went right to the count, the conversations they could have with themselves too. So I'm like, it's so funny how and you ask a professor, they're horrible at time management. They do whatever they want. They answer whatever questions they want. Um, but counselors to themselves, I would say like where and, and could they potentially benefit from learning about this? Personally and professionally, where could they potentially benefit from learning more about technology and engaging with it? Counselors to each other, I think we need to continue to have conversations about where our deficits are. So especially if we have a client who's having emotional regulation issues, you know, or, you know, and, you know, video game addict, or sorry, I keep saying video game, but gaming addictions, phone addictions, you know, um, anxiety, depression, like, you know, agoraphobia, like all these kinds of things and making sure we're continuing to seek help and consultation where it's appropriate um, and not ever feeling like we should know this stuff because we shouldn't. Um, and how, like, I think from a DEI perspective, my hope is that technology is so expensive. It is so ridiculously out of reach for some people that um, as a whole, we are advocating for very purposeful distribution of infrastructure to support technology for everybody. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I should say that's um, access is so important. And yeah. um, it, if you look at you know, the Pew Research Center, they often are posting a lot of data like from globally, but also more particularly the US um, technology yeah. use and age groups and um, race and ethnicity breakdowns. It is interesting to see, and um, I think probably expectedly, we see that age has a pretty big impact yeah. here. And so, yeah, it, it seems like, you know, we are counseling professionals, so we have to reflect and count, kind of have that conversation with ourselves, but also like with each other, stay connected because the technology can actually help us support each other and support the people that, that we're working with. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, do you think there are any 
conversations we should be having with our clients specifically? Oh, so absolutely. So I think educating parents, educating, um, you know, clients about their use. And is it like my, my thing with clients was always this. If what you're doing is working, why would you change it? So if they come to you, there's obviously there's been a hiccup, there's been a breakdown, there's something's not working. So providing them with opportunities to have conversations about where they would like to see the change. Maybe I don't want to, you know, play as much. I don't want to do this as much. You know, maybe I need to limit my TikTok use to, you know, do nothing an hour before bed. It's really affecting my sleep. You know, I'm feeling really depressed because I'm on social media too much. Um, so all of these kinds of different things. The funniest conversation that I had with one of my uh, past students who's now with a colleague and he was talking about how he's working with adolescents. And like his parents would come in and they'd be like, well, I tell him he could just pause the game and come down for dinner when, you know, they were, they were gaming. And he's like, you can't pause the game. It's not like that anymore. So that parent just realizing that that's not a thing that you can do anymore because he thought the child was being absolutely ridiculous. So how funny it is how that one little calibration, that one little tweak could de-escalate a potential situation in a family. So really looking at how we can help clients live a better quality life and have a better relationship with technology. Yeah, definitely. I push for that all the time. Social media literacy, technology literacy, it's important to to continue that intentional path, right? Yeah. So I am so excited you joined us today and I just want to give you the last opportunity. Is there anything you want to plug or um, share before we wrap up? So like I said, MetaVoice Foundation, um, we are currently actively seeking ASAP certification. Um, we're getting approval by the IRS. I'm in the final stages. So I'm on LinkedIn. For anybody who wants to get a hold of me, please feel free to reach out if you're interested in contributing. Um, I'll be, as soon as I get approval, I will be posting and making CEUs or CEs available. So take advantage. Um, you can get a hold of me that way. And I look forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks for having me. I had a great awesome. time. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next time on Ohio Counseling Conversations. Have a great day. Ohio Counseling Conversations is on a mission to make this podcast meaningful to you. And we can't do that without your help. A feedback form is linked in the show notes for this episode and is also available on the OCA link tree. If you have any recommendations for topics or guests or any other general feedback, you can let us know by using the form. We welcome your thoughts so that we can continue to develop the podcast and grow as creators. If you are interested in joining the team or being a guest, you can also reach us by emailing ohiocounselingconversations at gmail.com. We value your insight. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us so you can stay up to date with Ohio Counseling Conversations online and wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Counseling Association's Media, Public Relations, and Membership Committee and its podcast subcommittee. Views, beliefs, or references mentioned in this episode do not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the Ohio Counseling Association. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect the view of the Ohio Counseling Association or any of its officials. Thank you.